Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. Josh Wink is an expert at creating tension in club music. It's an approach that could be traced from some of his early hit records like Don't Laugh, Highest State of Consciousness and I'm Ready, right through to his latest single, Balls, which was released earlier this year after a four-year break from making music. Wink's story begins over a decade before his breakout tracks made him a globally recognised star. In fact, he remembers the exact moment that set him on the path to DJing and production, a journey that would take him from being a 13-year-old mobile DJ to becoming a key figure in Philadelphia's party scene and ending up as one of House & Techno's biggest DJ and producers. I spent time with Wink during his recent trip to London and found him thinking deeply about his twin roles as a gigging international DJ and being the father of a young child. So this year you returned with uh, your first original music in four years. Um, I wanted to start by asking what sort of led to you having a break from recording or not releasing music. Personal music I took a break from, not necessarily on purpose. Releasing music on a label, on Ovum, not on my own, has been something that's always been paramount to me because when I'm not making music I still uh, around doing things for Ovum. The good thing about that is that, you know, I don't have to necessarily release music, but if someone releases something on Ovum, a lot of the press says, you know, Josh Wink's Ovum recordings. So uh, a release is kind of like a tattoo on my back, you know, where people can see, oh, this, oh, you're still around, you're still doing it. But I think a lot of DJ and producers, or producers, DJs, lose sight sometimes of how they got to where they are because all of a sudden with success through releases one begins to have the opportunity to travel and you get lost in the game of traveling all the time and then it becomes like this is what I do now but the, the hindsight is how did I get here? Well, I got here by making music and then people wanted me to uh, DJ. So the reason why I haven't made music was because I was just busy traveling and just getting lost in, in that kind of trap of just DJing and not having the time to sit in the studio and make music. And I used a reference before about a tattoo. I think that, you know, releases for me are like tattoos. Tattoos you can at least remove, you know, releases you can't. So it was always an important thing for me when I got into the studio to make some sort of artwork that it was something of a, a conscious release that I was happy with putting out there because it was going to follow me with my life. So traveling, traveling, traveling made it hard for me to be in the studio. 
you know, going away for four days and coming home for three days. And in that three days time, and while I'm home, the responsibilities of the record label, being normal, being human, the laundry, bills, being in a relationship, I found it difficult to be able to get into the studio uh, for me. And I'm not a laptop musician now. I don't compose music on the road on the laptop. I save it for my studio. So when I would have time to get into the studio in the two to three day window while I was home, there would always be reasons on why it didn't happen. One being the fact that technology always has things change. So to update my system software, update uh, hardware, you know, just simple things like updating software to, you know, run native to my operating system on my computer. You know, a simple task of updating something will take three days because you update it and then certain plugins won't work with your operating system and then you have to find the serial numbers for it and then you can't find the serial numbers and then you got to email the company. And so everything kind of happened. And learning new operating systems and learning new programs and learning new applications made it difficult for me to kind of get in the studio and feel comfortable with doing what I did. And I didn't want to break out all my uh, hardware gear and a lot of it's in storage and make music. I wanted to have a mixture of uh, my contemporary production styles along with my retro production styles of using analog and hardware. So with this in mind, how difficult was it to get started again? Uh, it, it wasn't difficult at all um, because even though I got in the studio and I didn't release anything, uh, constantly I was updating and constantly trying to get in so I can feel comfortable with how things are. You know, I was getting, uh, you know, Native Instruments would send me something and I would check out and then, uh, you know, this company I got something from and I, I would want to kind of learn it and just use it to its full potential to help benefit me in, in my creative process. Uh, so along the years, I kind of got to know things a little bit more, but I didn't feel comfortable with getting in there and just doing something just for the sake of just doing it. Um, I'd like to be able to have releases that have, you know, profound impact. But, you know, you never can control that. Uh, things happen organically for a reason. You know, some people, uh, you know, some of my bigger records were just mistakes or, you know, something like that. So um, balls came about. It was like I, I, I envisioned going in the studio and coming out with something completely different than balls. And that just came out. And uh, Matt, who's my label manager, and who assists me with things in my life personally and also with the label, he heard it and he was just like, Dude, this is this is awesome, you know? It sounds contemporary, but it sounds old school. And it's it sounds like Wink, it sounds like you. You know, it sounds like uh, you didn't want to compromise or you didn't want to fall in line to what's hip and popular, but you just kind of put your signature, your music. Yeah, I played, this record in December at the opening of Space Nightclub in Brazil. And uh, it was a big lineup of artists opening up, international artists like Carl Cox and Nick Fanciulli and uh, Robert Dietz, uh, Yusuf, uh, Mark Knight. And uh, Yusuf was hanging in the booth with me most of my set. And the only record he came up to ask me about was this. And he said, what is that? He, he says, I know it's you. 
And I said, well, how, how did you know? And he says, I don't know. It has this organic wink techno sound to it. So that made me happy, the fact that someone can actually identify my music, even though it may, it could be a techno record or it could be a house record. You know, there's some sort of a signature thing that people identify with me, which is unique to have nowadays, I think. Were you conscious when you finished the track that it was quite different from what's out there at the moment? No, it was brought to my attention with the title. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I did something on um, Dave Seaman's show, I guess on BBC One. He does a, an anthem show on Saturday night, I think it's called, still. It's a great show, but I, I did an interview with him while I was in Malta live on the radio, and he said, why is it called Balls? And I said, just to get people like yourself saying balls on the radio. And that's not necessarily the case. Um, someone, someone said, not me, that you know, you'd have to have balls to play it because of it doesn't sound, it's, it's a longer track, it takes you places, it doesn't sound like what's popular right now in terms of the masses. So um, that's how the name kind of came about. But I don't know. I mean, I still, when I perform as a DJ, I, I play a little bit of everything. So this is something that I would play in a set anyways. So to me, it, it wasn't any different, but it was kind of different from a lot of the stuff that was out there, I guess. But I don't know, you take a chance, even at Ovum, you know, when you sign records that don't sound like a big selling record, you take a chance. Is this something that you're attracted to with this style of record? I mean, I kind of see this as sort of the um, as being in a lineage of like these very impact-driven club records that you've written down the years. Mm. Is this something that attracts you to this style? A lot of my music, I I feel, is based on tension, and a lot of the tension translate well translates well to uh, a nightclub, dance floor, festival setting. You know this anticipation, this tension in between things, whether it be uh, the sound of the music and the soundscape. If you have a sound that's lush and then you have a sound that's abrasive and then you have the tension in between it or the tension of, you know, the buildup. Is it going to happen? When is it going to come? You know, a lot of my music is based on that. Um, you know, uh, the, the big one, for example, was, uh, you know, I Am Ready you know, with this uh, minute and a half long breakdown and snare roll buildup that caused uh, an eruption on the dance floor. Uh, don't laugh, this uncomfortable, weird tension of this guy laughing and uh, and when the beat's going to come in and how's your evening so far, this reverb swelled tension. Uh, you know, there's something, uh, the tension in the music which helps drive these tracks to be able to be played on both smaller dance floors but also large festivals so i it's not really a balls changed and originally it wasn't as dramatic and then matt said go balls out is an expression that we say in america you know if you're going to do it just do it so it became even more tension filled you know where it just was like Ugh, it's uncomfortable but when it really comes in it really is like a release it's like not being able to sneeze yet you have to sneeze or you know something like that um are the particular production like tricks or, or something along those lines that you feel like you've come back to like recurringly are the the things that you do in the studio that kind of feed into this tension that you talk of well when i make dance floor records i 
I envisioned myself dancing of some sort or, or in some sort of a, a, a setting where this music is. Is there a particular place that you... <laughs> no, it's a good <laughs> question, <laughs> actually. That's, no, I just have my eyes closed. That's I like dancing with my eyes closed because I, I like to actually feel the music and see it visually through my ears rather than being uh, influenced by this the stimuli around. So um, my studio production is basing myself with creating my own loops through percussion and then resampling them and then kind of putting them together as I would as a DJ. So my production... DAW, my my sequencer that I use, my digital workstation is uh, Ableton, and I use the the clip view, doing my own clips of my loops, and then I kind of get comfortable with what I have, and then I just record myself live in the studio with like my eyes closed in a sense, getting an idea and the natural flow of how things I feel are going to be, or and the anticipation of a DJ or a, someone that's out there on the on the dance floor or something like that. So I wouldn't say any necessary production tricks because I, I don't like to rely on certain things, but I rely on my my knowledge of what I do. Um, so by envisioning me as DJing these tracks, but you know, when I when I make tracks that aren't necessarily dance floor driven, driven, I don't picture myself on the dance floor, obviously, but. You know, I have my winkisms, if you want to call it, that you know people can tell it's my own music, or signature sound, whether it be this tension in the buildup or how it comes to be. I, I don't know. It's it's something I think it's safer for someone like yourself to comment about than me saying that. Yeah, I got this and I got that. Has the production process become any easier as you've grown older? Um, the hardest part for me is getting in the studio. I still think that I identify with an audience. You know, one thing about getting older is, and especially in, in an artistic realm or of anything, whether you're a journalist, a painter, a, a musician, is to be able to identify with someone, a crowd, a person, a, a buyer, a, a patron, an observer. And I try to be able to put myself in various situations where I can be as um, malleable to situations as possible and identify with a producer that's 17 years old where I'm 43, you know? Because it's a very finicky thing for, you know, as someone who's producing music now for a younger generation, you know? Um, I don't really think so deep about that, I just kind of organically let it happen. And just me being who I am after 43 years kind of just lets it be. So I love creating. I, lo I, still, I still am so blessed to be able to run a record label and lose money at it because I just love it. I love supporting and being a catalyst for someone else and also a, a think tank of like-minded producers you know, where I can be a venue to have them start a career uh, on, on the label. And also with me as a producer, I'm blessed to be able to still be doing this after, you know, uh, being a DJ when I was a teenager, starting in production when I was a teenager, and then finally releasing records, 
you know, uh, in the late eighties. So, um, the hardest part for me in that question of, is it easier is the hardest part of that is just getting into the studio. When I'm in there, things just kind of happen. Uh, it's sometimes a long drawn out process. Sometimes it just clicks and then sometimes it organically happens probably similar to you as a journalist. You know, you have a vision, you have uh, an idea, and then, you know, I'm just having a, a montage vision of, you know, the old person at the typewriter typing and then typing on a ribbon, and then next thing you know, it, you see the shot, uh, the wastebasket, and then there's just like shots and piles of crumpled paper, you know. You, you never really know the creative process, and it's not just pertained solely to music, it's pertained to any form of, of art, I find. You know, uh, and then it's obviously up for interpretation and because that's art, it's being subjective. So for me, it's like sometimes it, it's fluid and sometimes it happens with ease. And then sometimes I, I, I bang my head on the wall. I just I can't get it. And then I, I just leave it and come back to it. You'd um, you touched on there when you were kind of well, going back over what's got you here that it was during your teenage years that you started DJing. It was you're pretty young, right? I'd uh, I'd read that first you were a mobile DJ, and I don't know if it was accurate, but 13 was the was the age I read. Is that the case? Ryan, you're on it. <laughs> <laughs> I had an epiphany. I love the fact that certain like can you real if we were out before we started recording, let's say we were having a drink like we were, and I said, you know what? How did you end up here? Do you remember one thing in your life that brought you to this point? I do, for me. So, I mean, we don't have to talk about this now, but I would like to know. I mean, there is an epiphany in someone's life, a point which causes that person to be here now in front of you, me in front of you, you in front of me. To me, it's the most exciting thing about talking to someone, why our paths are here. I would not solely be here if it wasn't for one thing that happened to me when I was 13. I was at a summer camp in Philadelphia. And there's this counselor that said to me, if your hand is bigger than your face, you have cancer. So of course, as a 13 year old boy, or if anybody says that, you put your hand to your face. And then he smacked my hand and it whacked me in the face and I had a real severe asthma attack. And I got rushed to the hospital and I, you know, Anyways, he felt horrible about this experience and he felt guilty, blah, blah, blah. And by this simple experience, he became like, I, I, I don't know, uh, obviously a little bit more concerned about me because of what happened. But he was the radio station DJ in this little city where I was for this camp. And I then began to hang out with him in the radio station. And he was only two years older than me. He was 15. But from that point, we became friends. And he was a, the radio station DJ. And I was like, DJing? It's, this is awesome. And it turns out that he had a mobile DJ company. And I became his apprentice and learned how to pack a car and learn equipment. And he would give me money. And I would go out and buy all the records to do weddings and bar mitzvahs and sweet 16 parties and community parties, you know, things like that. But 
if this wouldn't have happened, I don't imagine that I would be here. I mean, who knows where it could have gone and, you know, if I didn't record this song or if I didn't meet this person. But for the most part, my interest in DJing and music on a different level was solely because of meeting this guy. And then it was just kind of like a, a snowball effect. You put the snowball on the top of the mountain and you let it go. And then it just gains momentum. And, you know, that's just life as we are as humans. So um, I... You know, he went on to be a, a, a bigger radio station DJ in Philadelphia area in, in New Jersey. And I saved up enough money from working with him to buy his equipment. And I taught myself how to DJ. And then I would go to, you know, events in Philadelphia, like with Jazzy Jeff and, uh, you know, Cash Money in the early hip hop days in Philadelphia. And I would learn about nightclub DJing, disco DJing, hip hop DJing. And just start going to the record stores and buying more stuff. And, you know, the, the process just started. You know, then I wanted to be a nightclub DJ. And, you know, the only way I can get into a nightclub was to work there. Because in America, you have to be 21 years of age to get into a nightclub. So I ended up, you know, being a barback and washing glasses and, you know, carrying cases of beer upstairs just to so I can get into the club and listen to the stuff and give the manager a tape of mine and say, hey, if anything ever happens, you know, I also DJ, you know. So and then from there, it was just like I'm, I started doing house parties and school parties. And, and then I started in the late 80s with a friend of mine, Blake, doing, you know, the first warehouse parties in Philadelphia in 88, 89. Um, and then I was like, I wanted to be I want to be on a I want to play in New York. You know, that was like, the, these were all like goals of like what I wanted to do. And then I ended up playing in New York. And then I was like, you know, I'm, I'm playing other people's music. Why not make all this music that's in my head? You know, how do I get it out there? And that's when the production aspect started to come into my life when I was, I think, 18, 19 years old. So anyways. I was going to ask, um, what did some of those first parties look like in Philadelphia? The, the warehouse parties you mentioned, like we, what was we, the scene like in its formative years um it was great because you know i had a record that came out a couple years ago called when a banana was just a banana and the biggest question for people about it was well why how, how come that name it's kind of a silly name and it basically is an analogy for me of saying you know uh there was a loss or an in a loss of innocence that came with things when we we're teenagers or we we're younger I, growing up, never was ridiculed for liking a certain style of music. You know, I was into reggae, I was into uh, pop music, I was into, you know, hip-hop, I was into new wave, I was into punk rock, and that it was okay, you know? And then all of a sudden, you get older, or as time moved on, if you listen to, you know, uh, this pop artist, you know, people didn't want to hang out with you or something like that. Or if you only listen to this style of music, you know, you don't go to that club. You know, in, in the 80s in Philadelphia, it was just everything. And to me, that's how it was awesome. And we lost that. I don't know where about it came. And the analogy was, when you're younger, a banana was just a banana. And then as soon as you get older, a banana wasn't a banana anymore. It was, it was a yellow fruit, but it was also like a phallus, you know, a, a sexual symbol. Or it became a, a, an, an icon for Andy Warhol and the Velvet Underground or, you know, whatever it was, you have your conceptions of things. And then somewhere along that was lost. 
So there was this loss of things also in Philadelphia, where in the beginning, the music scene was a mixture of people, mixture of cultures, um, whether or not you're black or white or gay or straight or man or female, whatever it was. Uh, the Philadelphia scene in, back in the 80s was very open towards all different kinds of music, from playing a pop record to playing a, a soul record that was produced in the 80s uh, or the 70s. Uh, or a disco record that's playing the the seventies, or uh, a new wave record that came out in the eighties. So it, it was really a mixture, and that's how it it was. And a lot of DJs from Philadelphia are shaped like that, of being able to, you know, command a knowledge of of different music, uh, and kind of meld it in there together. So that's how it was. But the you know what we brought to it was that you know we were both bicycle couriers, bicycle messengers. And we would promote on our bikes, you know, when we deliver packages to people um, on the street and through my going to the university, uh, Temple University in Philly, I would promote there. And we had uh, like these amazing parties at this squatter warehouse in 1989, you know, and it was it was just awesome, you know. Do you remember when you kind of first became conscious of this tribe mentality? being in place could you elaborate on tribe mentality yeah well you were saying that there was there was just people listening to music in a different way in in the 80s and you know you weren't making so many distinctions between sounds when did it start to become the case that people were being put into separate categories when did you have to choose for me it never became a question of me having to and i think that's i don't know uh integrity and and passion and decision kind of made that happen for me. I liked it all. Even to this day, I still play a little bit of, of everything as I think it just, it, I, I don't want to say is what it should be, you know, because should is a dangerous word. Um, for me, it works this way of being able to play. Last night I played at the closing of this famous club in Leiden, uh, Holland called the L LDC. And it's been around for over 15 years and last night was a last night and you know i played a little bit of everything you know from old school techno to uh, the bristol sound of dubstep to you know deep house from Det from uh, from berlin to acid house from chicago and you know that's just how i work the dj before and after didn't do that but i guess maybe that's why someone will will book me um, I like all kinds of music and I don't like to have to make that decision. It's sometimes difficult because, you know, people aren't aware of it and it's easier to just play it safe, I imagine. But I guess it's just in my character to be able just to do what I like and not have to think about what I have to do, mm. you know? It sometimes becomes difficult. Do you feel like Philly had a sound in the early 90s? Well, Philly had a sound, <laughs> the Philly well, sound, that but that was more in the 70s with disco and stuff like that. Um, but no, I mean, Philly was basically just known for its, you know, the, the, the TSOP, the sound of Philadelphia created by, you know, um, Gamble and Huff with Philly International Records. But in terms of its sound, it wouldn't be known otherwise out unless you're from Philly and you would be able to realize that. So no. I mean, but a lot of the DJs from Philadelphia are like that, that are traveling and successful DJs. My, my, my brother and my old partner, King Brit, you know, King makes and DJs all different kinds of music, whether it be a, 
a techno album or uh, his dubstep stuff on hyperdub and his experimental stuff or rich medina you know playing soul and hip-hop and also house music um you know ursula rucker a spoken word vocalist that's worked you know with the the roots and bahamadian king and and me and you know she'll hop around and do different things from there so there's uh there's a lot of people even with jazzy jeff you know jeff does an amazing house set you know he he has a roots in in house as well but he's just known for hip-hop so uh, a lot of the touring dj producers from philadelphia kind of combine a little bit of everything as well too so i guess that really kind of has something to say about philadelphians so when and how did you first gain recognition from outside of the city well, someone always said to me, you know, I, I try to make myself as approachable as possible when it comes to, you know, fans or people in general. Um, and by doing so, people kind of come up to me and said, you know, how did you get started or what did you do? And, you know, without going into that long story about why I'm doing what I'm doing, I said, people wouldn't know me outside of Philadelphia unless I made music. You know, that's your ticket. That's your passport to the world is to be able to produce because people just don't know a DJ in, in a small club in Philadelphia, you know, put out records and then from records from from bedrooms to worlds, you know, we produced all of our, you know, I say we, but most people back in the day had a, a little studio in their house. And from these little bedrooms, you know, you can travel the world. So through production, I was able to start to kind of really travel and get outside. You know, the first release that I had was uh, with King Brit as E-Culture on Strictly Rhythm. We did in 89, that was released in 1990. And that became a little bit of a, a cult record for us. And, uh, you know, we got to be able to travel upon that. And then, you know, other records through different labels through the times uh, and through press uh, became a little bit more well-known outside of just, you know, a buzzing hip name of like, who's this guy? You know, and starting to be in magazines in the UK that we would idolize. You know, we would read NME and ID magazine all the time to find out a new artist. And then all of a sudden we were in it, you know, so it was like a really amazing thing. So I guess production is really in, in the early 90s is what kind of catalyst for jettisoning my traveling outside. I focus a lot on the US and the rave scene in the early 90s rather than traveling so much. You know, because a lot of the, the Detroit guys, um, you know, they would, you know, Carl or Derek or Juan or Kevin, they, they would pretty much travel outside of the U.S., where a lot of other people, even that were making music, were focusing on, on the U.S., you know, because uh, it was a, just a different scene. It was very similar to Europe for Americans was kind of like the jazz scene uh for americans in the 50s you know where you would get uh, a lot of black jazz musicians that wouldn't be accepted in america because of uh, racial you know discrimination or something like that where in europe you know these jazz musicians were revered and they would come and play in paris or belgium or england or wherever and it would be their outlet and you know a lot of that was america wasn't ready for electron uh you know U.S. techno music at the time and the, those pioneers who I mentioned earlier were able to kind of travel and pave the way for you know American techno Detroit techno music 
were you a busy DJ within the sort of US borders? Yeah, I, I was actually uh, very busy on the East Coast, and then it started to make its way, and you know, r tapes of mine started circulating, and I would start to play raves in, in Florida, and then in the Midwest, and then in the West Coast. So, yeah, I kind of the snowball effect just kind of happened. To be playing most weekends. Yeah, yeah, yeah in the uh, in the late in the early '90s, that's for sure. Um, I wanted to ask about 1995 because you released a trio of tracks, which was "Don't Laugh." state and I am ready were you feeling particularly inspired around that time <laughs> like I had lots of releases before that you know underground releases that help shape who I was and you know an image of me that people were finding out about I was kind of starting out with making music and wanting to release my own records on labels that I've always was interested in releasing on such as uh, Strictly Rhythm and Nervous Records out of New York and RNS Records out of Belgium and uh, you know record labels here from the UK, but there's a term of the perfect storm that kind of comes to mind, and I don't know really kind of what came about it. I mean, the perfect storm for me was higher states, not to kind of focus so much on that because it's refreshing to not sometimes, but you know it's something in my past that I. It, who is me but you know this record kind of came about and it was originally an ambient track on a strictly rhythm ambient compilation and then i did a remix to it and uh, it was called the tweak and acid funk mix and all of a sudden it just crossed borders and boundaries like what i was talking about with music before you know a dj would play a soul record or a techno record or a, a house record or a funk record didn't matter Higher States was somehow or other able to, through the timing and through its channels on how it came out, whether it's because it was released on, on Strictly Rhythm, which was kind of known solely as a house label back then. But, you know, certain key tastemaker DJs got their hands on it and all of a sudden the snowball just started getting bigger. Um, you know, where Charles Peterson was playing it and championing it and then all of a sudden, you know, DJ rap and then Marusha, Love Parade, you know, whatever it may be, all of a sudden it just crossed boundaries and it, the right time and the right sound and that's just kind of what came out. For that, Don't Laugh was kind of a recycled idea from a track I did on Nervous called um, How's the Music? But I remember I was DJing for four days in the US and I didn't really get much sleep, like four hours sleep in four days. And I was so tired, but I was so inspired to make some music. And the only thing I could do was laugh. So I sampled my laughter. And then, you know, that got in the right hands. And, you know, uh, Junior Vasquez got it in New York. And he was like a uh, pinnacle kingpin for uh, champion, uh, breaking records in New York. And a lot of people heard it there. And then it just kind of came about. Uh, I Am Ready, um, you know, it just did something different, you know. It, it went from a dance track into a hip hop track and then had this hour, uh, a minute and a half tension filled buildup. I mean, I always kind of feel inspired. It's just that the snowball got really big in 95, you know, with those three songs. But still, the, the tracks that he did before that were still seminal tracks for me. You know, it's just that these help open the doors a little bit wider for me as being known. What was the result of those tracks in that period of time? Like, what doors were open for you? 
well, as you may be able to imagine, it just, you know, got me from being known solely by the people in the record shops to uh, being known by, you know, other people. So it allowed me to be able to kind of travel the world and be able to uh, do my craft outside of certain areas on a bigger level. Got asked to do more festivals, got bigger festivals, more press, you know, I would say typical kind of things. And these tracks were cool because they crossed the boundaries at the same time. You so could have someone. State, it was uh, charted in the UK as well, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. I mean, actually, they all charted the same year. I, I don't know the logistics on it. I mean, I'd like to find out some information, but, you know, how many tracks of those were in the top 50 in the UK charts at one time, I think. I don't know. I don't know how many times that's kind of been done by three different artists who's the same person, you know? So, anyways. It just kind of is what it was. It opened a lot of doors, but it also, by choice, closed a lot of doors for me. But I was the one that was closing the doors. Um, I didn't necessarily like what I'd become. Um, I liked being, you know, just kind of Josh rather than Josh Wink. You know, the guy up on the billboard to being recognized on the streets. And, you know, I, I just, I, I didn't like the, the big fame and fortune that kind of came out of it so much. Or... It's not what I was kind of leading up to. I was just doing it because this is something I love to do. And it was kind of, I've said it before, it's not a mistake, but it was kind of, um, it was something that I wasn't planning for. You know, I was just releasing and making music out of my bedroom. And I didn't expect or just necessarily saying, I, I want this, I want to do this. That wasn't my drive. It wasn't my, my vision. My vision was just being able to put music out there that people liked and DJed and played, you know? Um, so the, the track was remixed and there was videos and everything was done without my approval. I was never notified. I was never told. I mean, I found out by being in a hotel room in Switzerland and I turn on this music television channel and there's a, there's a video for a, my song with a remix I knew nothing about. And then it, it actually hurt me a little bit because then people began to know me for different versions of my song that I actually had no control over. So certain doors were open, but at the same time, I didn't want them to be open that way where people would come out to gigs expecting to hear uh, you know, the, the mainstream radio version i i took what i had and used it and applied it and then you know i cut my hair stopped doing press and just really focused more on the record label and and traveling differently and that's really where my head was at the time was it the recognition you said that kind of made you a little uncomfortable maybe there were sort of preconceived expectations of what you were like and i guess just a very typical like symptom of fame was it something you found quite uncomfortable I, I can imagine if that if this is you know someone who's really determined and said I'm going to take over the world I'm going to do the biggest thing like that it's fine you know a lot of people get involved in making music or being artists nowadays because they 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 want to emulate what they see which is the the DJs and the champagne and the private jets and the limousines and you know uh, the the party the cocaine the every everything that kind of comes to mind with being success this wasn't like my or most of my colleagues this wasn't what we set out to do i mean it's cool that it happened but it was kind of like it was a weird byproduct of just following your passion you know and then when you lose control of it 
it's even it's worse and it puts a weird taste in your mouth and that's one of the reasons why i really started to focus on ovum is because we were a record company run by an artist artists that looked out for the benefit of other artists you know always included other artists and their ideas and their directions and where they want to go and you know even today people say uh, whether it be Shlomi Aber or, or Manic or Kink, um, you know, when they want to do light, late, you know, albums for Ovum, they say, "Well, what do you want? What do you, what kind of album do you want from me?" I said, "Ask yourself the question: What kind of album you want to be known for, and what kind of album you want to do?" And I think this is something to be revered and like to really be proud that I'm able to do that and tell someone and shape them. As a, a producer, I can tell them, "Hey, I." I like this, but I think it would be kind of cool to go that way. What do you think? Rather than, you know, just having it done behind their back. So everything was kind of, everything happens for a reason. But people's expectations of me changed as soon as they heard different versions of who I was. You know, where on daytime radio, they'd be playing my song. Uh, and then there'd be billboards of me with, my picture all over London with dreadlocks and people were recognizing me on the tube or when I would come into the country, the immigration officer was like, oh, is that you? You know, something is cool about it, but it's something was like, ah, it felt a little weird, you know? So you cut your hair? I cut my hair, yeah. Well, I trimmed it and then I ended up cutting it, you know? And then I went to what I look back on now is like a Martin Gore phase of what my hair looked like. <laughs> but retrospectively speaking it's kind of interesting to to think about it and talk differently about it than i usually do with most interviews but has it been tough to maintain focus on putting out music with ovum i mean you've been out nearly 20 years now yeah next year will be our 20-year anniversary of ovum and we're just planning right now 20 events for 2014 curating stages at festivals and having parties and big clubs and small clubs and having artists on our label or people that have championed our music you know so a lot of that is going to in the in the planning stages right now um you know uh it's a labor of love running a record company because there's not really money in it anymore it's kind of just like a tool used so i mean we're getting demos from people that don't want any advance they just want to be released on a label that they like you know, and they want to be able to use it and then go out and say, hey, you know, I recorded on these labels and, you know, hire me, book me. Or some, I do Ovum events and then some artists, you know, play with me on the night. Uh, so this this is cool. But it's, you know, we, we listen to music kind of through our heart, if if that makes kind of sense, rather than with our head. We don't sign something we sign something because we we feel something from it emotionally, which is obviously mind-driven, but it, it's thought of as with your heart. You know, you feel it. So we don't necessarily sign records that we think would be the biggest sellers, but would be great for our catalog and great for an artist and help shape and develop our sound and our style. So we, you know, go through a lot of records, you know, uh, people sending me music that sounds like me or other artists on the label which is sometimes a good thing and sometimes a, a bad thing. But uh, Matt runs a tight ship at Ovum and you know we're fortunate to be around for 20 years. It's, it's something that doesn't happen so often, you know, and I feel happy to be in a, in a crew of people and labels that are still around doing our thing. I mean, looking back on the last 19, 20 years, um, do you feel as though the sound of the label gradually became more refined down the years? 
it started out differently, you know. Uh, Ovum started by myself, and then King came along later when he was done. He was a, a tour DJ for the Dickable Planets, and when he was done, um, I said, hey, dude, I'm starting a label. You want to be involved? And he said, yeah, let's do it. So there was three people involved in the label. That was uh, just me and King as signings. He was Silk 130, and I was just Wink or Josh Wink. And then there was a drum and bass artist from America named Jamie Myerson, and he was the, our, the other first three signings of the label. And then we just became known as just an eclectic life label, you know, Ovum being a, a, an egg, you know, the basis of life. So we had all different kinds of music from, uh, you know, whether it be acid jazz, soulfully kind of stuff, or drum and bass, or, or techno and house. And I imagine today that we still, it reflects in the music that we release as well today. It tends to be a little bit more dance floor oriented than it has in the past, but you know, it's 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 difficult running a electronic music label from America, rather than in Europe. Why so? Because you guys have a culture for it. We don't necessarily have a culture for this. You know, we now have the EDM culture. You know, and the independent label for electronic music was never such a big thing in in the U.S. because we didn't have radio or press to support it. You know, it was always still bigger outside of the U.S. So the U.S. market was always weird when it came to electronic music. That's why so many Americans were overseas, because it was something, a sound that was adulated, you know, over here that wasn't so affected in the, or accepted in the U.S. through raves and illegal and bad and drugs and underage and everything that's really kind of been here. But uh, Europe is a little bit more accepting and tolerant towards this, where if you have a pirate radio station in America, you're thrown in prison. Where if you run a private radio station in the UK, they seize your equipment and then five years later, you're a huge radio station with listeners and, you know, a 25 person staff. You know, America has always been weird when it comes to electronic music and its support because it came with this stigmata of it, this rave and drugs and underage and people dying. And, you know, even though it didn't happen very much, this is just, its perception, its witch hunt. In America, so a lot of you know a lot more Americans would travel outside of the U.S. to be able to do their art. You know, kind of talked about earlier with going as the jazz musicians went over. You know, uh, you go to where the market is. So you know, also with you can't get into a nightclub unless you're 21 years of age. So house music, dance music was played in the nightclubs, and you couldn't get in there. There weren't all age nightclubs that were playing this kind of music. So. America's always been different when it comes to dance music, electronic music. It was always just the mainstream Whitney, like a, a house version, a dance version of Whitney Houston or Madonna that got to the radios, not like, you know, uh, Frankie Knuckles track, you know, not a Derek May track. You know, that stuff was played over here. You know, America would just have the mainstream artists that would just have a dance mix just to be able to, you know, seem cool and hip. With everything that's happened over the last couple of years, has that affected what you do at all? Have you seen an upturn and increase in what you do in your side of things? You mean the... That going along with the CDM explosion and interest in all things dance music? I think, you know, the more people you have involved, the more directions it can go. I don't necessarily understand a lot of it, but I don't have to and I don't feel like I need to be. I don't need to be the authority on it and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It is what it is. Um, so I see someone that can like Skrillex or 
um, Afrojack or Dead Mouse or something like that. But at the same time, if that listener all of a sudden hears, I'll give you an example. I have a radio show in America every week on a satellite radio station, but there's 23 million subscribers. And they say at one time, there's at least double that if two people listen in a car or at a home. So they say 44 to 45 million people listen at one time. And it's a subscription and they have two electronic music stations. One of them is DJ driven and based and there's a artist big in its field having radio shows and presenting from Steve Aoki to Paul Oakenfold to Tiesto to uh, Sander Van Dorn to Paul Van Dyke to, you know, uh, bigger name EDM kind of people. And then there's a couple of people like myself, uh, John Digweed, uh, Carl Cox that do a different side of it. But if someone's listening to a Tiesto show on Sirius Radio, and then all of a sudden my show comes on next, and they don't know about me, but they just listen to the this station because this is a station for uh, electronic music. All of a sudden, in the beginning of the show, I say, "Hey, you know, uh, this is Josh. This set was recorded live at this party I did in you know Belgium, and uh, in the next hour you'll be hearing tracks from uh, Jeff Mills, Richie Houghton, uh, Nicholas Jar, and all of a sudden someone listening to." Uh, you know, Tiesto, all of a sudden here's me, who they didn't know, talking about these three new artists. And then, you know, they may look them up. And all of a sudden, these people that only knew about, you know, Swedish House Mafia or something like that, or, you know, David Guetta, now knows about different people from going to my show. So I look at it like that, you know, someone that may be into a mainstream electronic music artist, um, like one of the ones I mentioned, all of a sudden may go deeper. It's like, you know, the matrix saying, how deep do you want to go into the wormhole? You know, and I think by more people being involved, more people can understand about all the differences and all the genres of the music. So it's opened a lot of doors to getting back to your question, EDM, you know, because it's like this huge, like push of these, you know, younger people or mid twenties or something hearing about this electronic music. Um, that didn't before. Uh, and then a small percentage of these people will find out about, you know, more underground artists. And that's the natural progression. I think it's great with any art. You know, you read James Joyce and then you find out who was influenced by him. And then actually you read Cates and, you know, all these people that it's, it's just a maelstrom of, of people all of a sudden that you find. And I look at it like that. The bad thing about it is just that a lot of people only ex ex want to expect this kind of music when they go to clubs. You know, they want to only hear this sound of music. And there's more to it than just that, you know. And that's, that's just the kind of ADD, EDM market we're living on, you know, where it's a small attention span. And if uh, the artists, uh, the DJs are making people pump you know, fist pump, then they're doing a bad job. And it's all about getting people to go like this, you know, fist pump, because if you're not, then the next DJ after you is doing a, you know, will do it better than you. And then, you know, it's just really weird. Uh, and I think that's a very important thing, you know, to me, I get more satisfaction when someone is on a dance floor with their eyes closed and lost than it is to have 5,000 people pogoing and with their hands up in the air. You know, for me as an artist, that's more fulfillment. You know, do you tend to take bookings for fist pumping shows? <laughs> do you play big stages these days? Well, because of my history and having so many years in what I do, I realize there is a, um, you know, a, a DJ, a disc jockey is an entertainer. Uh, 
And I think that you can entertain by not only playing the big tunes, but by making music out of doing your artistry. So, um, you know, I, I don't think there's necessarily the responsibility of someone, but I look at it like, you know, people used to book me for house gigs and techno gigs. And I may, this is when I was playing only vinyl and I would only be limited to 75 records of a DJ box. And all of a sudden I'm showing up at a club and, you know, I thought it was a house club and it's like a techno club. And I'm like, oh man, I only got 15 records. And, you know, it was too, so adapt, entertain with not compromising my integrity, but still do something that I like to do and, and entertain rather than being like, well, fuck it, this crowd doesn't understand it. I'm just going to do what I do. And that's that. I'm blessed to do what I do. I mean, I like to make music out of music and have people go to a place and, and learn about new things and, you know, where I can do what I do and just be happy. And if it sometimes isn't going the way I want it to go, then maybe I'll try going somewhere else. I, I use an analogy a lot about fishing and DJing. DJing is different than live shows. When you have a live artist, people from that artist will go out and hear it. Like Depeche Mode, they'll play at Wembley Stadium. I would imagine everybody there is for Depeche Mode. You won't get people there just going because it's a cool place to go. A bar, a club, on the other hand, you'll get people to come out because it's a cool bar and, you know, uh, there's hot chicks there and I'm going to get laid and, you know, I want to get drunk and I don't know who's DJing. And, you know, that comes about. So when you DJ and when you do a live show, it's completely different, I would think. But to me, sometimes DJing is like fishing. I don't know if you've ever been fishing, but um, you'll know if you've ever been fishing that you cast your rod into the water with bait on the end of it. And then, you know, you let it sink to the bottom and then you may feel a bite and then you reel the rod back up and then you notice that the bait is gone, but you, there's no fish. And so you do it again. You throw out another line. You hope to catch a fish. All of a sudden, you feel something tug and pull. And you pull it, and you think you got it, and nah, it's not there. So you reel it in, and put the bait back on, you throw it back out. And then all of a sudden, an hour, 15 minutes, whatever the time is, all of a sudden, you, f you feel it. You got a bite. You know it. It's a connection. And all of a sudden, you got a fish on a hook. And the symbiotic new relationship comes in between you and this creature of uh, having it being able to swim away by choice you letting the the line out and go slack and then all of a sudden when you want to reel it back in you slowly reel it back in and you know when you got a fish you know when it and you know when you have it and to me that's a lot like djing sometimes sometimes i throw out the rod and it takes like 15 minutes or three pieces of bait three records to kind of get the crowd but I know when I, when I got it, I know I got that crowd, I can just let them go and swim with me and I could bring it back and let it go and this, this whole push and pull thing. And it, it's magic when it happens and I know when it happens and it's really cool. Has the fishing become easier since you introduced? <laughs> so no, fishing is like no. Yeah. I, I was just going to say with um with adopting new technology because you're a, kind of a, a famous adopter of new DJing technologies. Do you feel like you had more bait in your box? Mm. I try to be able to control things rather than have things control me. You know, everything changed for me DJing wise. You know, my view when I was in I think I was in Italy in the early to late 2000s 
And I was just before a DJ set, I was in the crowd with my eyes closed, just DJing while before the DJ. I mean, before I had to DJ, I got there an hour before and I was just getting the vibe and the energy of the crowd. And I was in the crowd and I had my eyes closed and I was just getting lost. And then I opened my eyes because someone tapped me on the shoulder. And I think someone knew who I was because they spoke English to me and it was in Italy. But they weren't like, oh, Josh Wink. They were just like, what's what's the DJ doing? The DJ before me was playing vinyl. And, you know, when you get done playing a record, you take it off. And usually the record box, or your record case is behind the DJ booth. And so this DJ was getting done with his vinyl and turning its back to the crowd and looking for the next piece of vinyl. And like no one was in the booth and the DJ had his headphones on, had its back to the crowd. And this young kid was like, what is he doing? Because he couldn't see. People were so used to now laptop DJs or laptop performers that they just never even knew like what a D, like what this whole turning and facing and turning away was. I started playing with Final Scratch, uh, this early technology in the early 2000s developed by these Dutch guys called N2IT, which was uh, kind of championed and brandished by John Aquaviva and Richie Houghton. And I was one of the, I think, first 10 people to get one of these. And I, I openly took it after seeing Rich use it. And um, I dug it and I always kind of combined a little bit of everything. But I started with it and I was balls to the wall, like, let's just do it. Let's do it. And I mixed, uh, I put all my, a lot of my collection digitally and I use it. And then I realized that I didn't like it so much. I felt a disconnect from the crowd. I felt like I was surfing the internet. Uh, I was in the computer too much. Um, I was playing too many classics because I had everything on my fingertips rather than being restricted by a record box and CDs. Um, but the reason I'm saying this is because I stopped using Final Scratch and went back to vinyl and then went from vinyl to CDs together and then all CDs. And then at a point in my life, I went back from CDs to using Tractor. And the point in my life when I became back to using Tractor was after I talked to this one kid and he was like, what is this guy doing? He's turning his face to the crowd. He, he's, And then I realized that my disconnect from looking at a computer stream for 15 seconds, what's the difference in between doing that than looking behind me and turning my face to the crowd? And then I realized that there isn't any. It's just my perception of a disconnect everybody's different when you're a laptop dj some people put their turn their laptops in front of the crowd some people put it a little bit away you know i like to set mine up on the side so i just have to glance over and see uh you know where the waveform is but i don't really look at it the whole time so my connection is still there i'm still looking at my mixer my cd players that are controlling my computer, which is over there, and my controller, and I can still connect with the crowd. So um, I don't feel a disconnect. But your question was, uh, how do you have more uh, bait? I like to be able to control, and as long as my head is able to understand it. So I understood my disconnect of not using it anymore. I felt disconnected for the crowd, and then I got over it when this kid said to me, what is he doing? He's turning his head for 30 minutes, uh, 30 seconds, maybe more, and I was like, he's looking for a vinyl, the next, the next track to play. He's like, oh, really? That's what he's doing? And then all of a sudden it clicked. 
you know, younger uh, certain people don't know because they're so used to now seeing a laptop DJ with a, a turned a laptop in front of them and going like this, you know. So that changed for me. I like to be able to use things to my advantage. I like to be able to use things rather than in them using me, you know. Um, I still use vinyl. I mean, CDs as a controller. I am not an internal sync DJ because I feel comfortable that way. I still feel like I need to control without pushing a button to sync uh, to do it. I'm not the, the haysayer to say what's good and what's bad. It's just that this is what works for me. I like to be able to combine a difference of uh, analog and, and software digital in the studio. And when I DJ, I like to be able to play a mixture of new and older things from vinyl and through digital as well. So yes, there's a lot of cool new tools. I'm not like losing sleep over the coolest, newest application that comes out and I gotta have it, you know. You know, things work out in time and as long as I know what to do with it when I have it and get to learn it and know it better, then it can be a sufficient tool for me to be able to catch fish. Do you put limits on the amount of music you carry? No. And it's a good question because I, Richie did a, a, a tour in the U.S. called Control, which you know about. And uh, I was asked to do a bunch of them and I could only do one. But at the talk in Philadelphia at Drexel University, which is an engineering school, I talked about the fact that DJs rarely put music. I mean, they always put music in to their record box, but they never take it out. And growing up, it's we were limited to a certain like carrying capacity. So uh, how often do I take records out? I, I don't very often. And I look because I record all my sets for my radio show in America on Sirius. And I listen to the sets and I see the track listing and you know, in a one hour show on Sirius or uh, on its broadcast in, in France and Belgium on FG or Sonica in, in, in Spain, I notice that I play anywhere from eight to 12 songs in an hour. And in a two or three hour set, I may play, you know, 20 to 20 to 22 songs, tracks. Yet I put in, you know, a hundred a week or so, or sometimes maybe more. So yeah, it's, it's difficult. Last night or two nights ago, I tried to find a track that I, it was a, a track by Matt Edwards, this radio slave thing, but it was on his, uh, cabin fever vital only label and I, I wanted to play it so badly and I, I I didn't I couldn't find it so instead of like getting more in the computer and feeling more uh, distance from the crowd I just moved on and chose something else but yeah you know you have going from a record box of 75 to 100 records to going to a hard drive with you know one terabyte worth of music <laughs> it's like oh shit how do you choose but I like the possibilities to be able to go anywhere and go fishing and, you know, play a Funkadelic track and then, you know, play a, a 70, uh, you know, a 70s disco track or an 80s acid house track along with playing something contemporary and new. So I like having that choice, but it sometimes it, it hurts, you know, sometimes I'd rather have less choice to make the decision rather than having more choice. Um, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about how things had um, maybe changed for you in the last couple of years with uh, your child. It was a couple of years ago, you're now a dad. Um, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about how that has affected you and this lifestyle that you've been leading for the last couple of decades. 
as I stated to you before, you know things are going to change when you have a child, but you don't know how much and how. And it's crazy how much things have changed because of it. Not just like all of a sudden you got this creature that is dependent on you, but also how you uh, adapt with this new creature. You know, and it's an adaptation process of, of uh, the, the world around this creature, not let alone this creature around the world. Um, so, you know, as stated to you before, I just love being a father. It's just turned into this, like, gorgeous thing uh, that I never thought it would be, where I, I don't want to travel as much. I just want to kind of stay home and make music and be a dad, <laughs> you know? And every time I leave, it's just so... I, I, I love to leave because it's just what I do and what I know from doing it for over 25 years. But it's just so something that pains me as well, too, because I leave this beautiful creature that I it's just so a part of me, not just like, you know, scientifically speaking, but also mentally speaking. So I have. You know, for, for me, I was two people before. I was Josh, the regular person that is a friend and the guy that goes to the store and the guy that rides the bike. And, and then I was Josh Wink, the artist that people knew. The, and then I became daddy. So I am still, even after 22 months, having a, a unique time trying to balance the, the lifestyle of the three. And getting into a studio has become more of a challenge for me too, designating this time uh because now when i'm well when i'm when i'm away traveling i'm away from home and being a father that way of being physical and being able to help uh, my lady out so when i come back i feel the pressure of being able to be more hands-on father that tries to take care and do everything and lighten the load for my lady uh and be there as much as I can for my son. So getting in the studio is difficult too because I work on the road and now I have to work when I'm home and then I also have to be a dad. So I'm like, where's this time? And so I talked to a bunch of colleagues that have had children and they said, oh yeah, I just work late. You know, I work in the studio when my son's asleep and this necessarily hasn't worked so well for me because my son gets up at six in the morning, six and 6.30, he's an early riser. He sleeps for 11 hours straight. We put him to sleep at seven and he wakes up at six, 6.30. And I have, I have daddy duties in the morning. You know, I let my, my lady sleep and, you know, I go in there and read him a book and change his diaper, change, you know, go downstairs and make breakfast. And, you know, this is what I feel like I want to do and have to do because I feel also a little pressure and guilt because I leave as well. So if I work in the studio until three or four in the morning, then I only have two hours sleep and then I have to, you know, use my day with little sleep and less energy, you know. Um, so I'm still trying to balance out when I need to go in there and do these kind of things. And for me, I would, I imagine when I would have a child that I would create some opus of a track that would be full of everything that I, I took. And the first real piece of music that I made was balls. And that wasn't the thing that I thought that would come about, you know. Um, but, you know, I have a lifetime now to be influenced and by my son. Uh, 
but I'm getting to see this production of him unfold. And this to me is the best kind of production that I've done.